Well, let's open in a word of prayer. We're in Judges. Try to get through chapter 4 and 5 tonight. But let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to come here in this place and uh, worship you in spirit and truth. And, and Father, we just pray that, that your word would be the center of our attention for the next few moments together. And, and Lord, as we look at uh, another judge that you raised up, Deborah, a woman, a very spiritual woman, and, and how you used her in a very uh, miraculous way. And, and so, Lord, we just thank you that... Uh, uh, you're a God who provides us, through your word, these examples and provide for us a place to meet. <clears throat> and Lord, we do uh, just remember all those around the world who are suffering for your sake and, and undergoing persecution to some, some degree. And Lord, we just pray that you would sustain them and your grace would be sufficient and equip our minds now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're, we're in Judges chapter 4 and 5. We uh, keep on hearing the same thing. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're going to read that over and over ad nauseum until we're done with this study. So uh, I know I'm repeating myself every week, but that's what, that's what it demands. And so this book, the book of Judges, is kind of, you know, as you're finding out, we're going to find out a little more tonight, but it's kind of one of those uh, nitty-gritty kind of books. Um, if you had to relate it, movies today, it would probably be more the military war-based movie that would attract the guys. It wouldn't be the lovey-dovey movie that would attract the, the women, per se. Uh, it's more of an action-filled book. And so uh, we're going to see some of that tonight. It's filled with sin. It's filled with violence. It's filled with the judgment of God. And we're going to uh, go through chapters 4 and 5. But we're going to be introduced to two women. Um, one is Deborah, who is the judge that God raises up, and the other one is goes by the name of Jael, and she's just a simple housewife. So you have it from all perspectives. One is a respected leader in uh, the nation, a judge, and the other is a simple housewife. And even though they came from different walks of life, um, they were used, both of them were used by God in uh, just incredible, miraculous ways. And so we're going to be looking at that. And so our focus mainly is going to be on Deborah because we're going through the judges. I want to start with just reminding you of a verse. You don't even have to turn there because we went over it a couple weeks ago on Sunday. But um, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 20 and 21. And I just want to read this for you and just kind of file it in your mind and you'll understand why. Because the story we're about ready to read in chapter 4 is uh, fits into this uh, Ephesians three twenty says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever amen and that's really depicts the story we're about to read in the book of Judges it's very unique because we're going to see where God saves his people in a very miraculous way. And Deborah's the center of that. But then also, it's unique because uh, at the end of the story, two of the characters, Deborah, who's the judge, and Barak, who is the military leader, uh, they break out in song and they celebrate what God has done for them. And that's all of chapter 5. And so we're going to work our way through chapter 4 first. And we'll get, we'll get uh, kind of started on this. 
<clears throat> but the first thing we see here in the beginning, uh, verse 1, we see that common phrase, and the people of Israel did, uh, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. You see here this, this meltdown in Israel. And we're, we're told a lot about their uh, corruption. They, they did what was evil. And, you know, we don't have to even go into that. We know what they were doing. They were, they were worshiping idols. They were doing all, all kinds of things that God forbid them to do. And their corruption was deep. It wasn't just surface corruption. It was corruption that worked its way deep into their society. Uh, and you see how in verse 2 here, the Lord sold them, that's how he chastises them, into the hand of Jabin, king of, of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Uh, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoam. And so this was one evil guy. This was not somebody who is uh, lovey-dovey. Uh, this was someone who constantly was looking for ways to oppress Israel. And they, they had this, this corruption within them. And so they were, in Judges 5.8, if you just look over there, it says, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. So the people of Israel literally turned their back <laughs> on the God of their salvation and came up with new gods. Now these are the people of God doing this. Okay, They no longer had a judge over them at all to direct them or to guide them or to give them any kind of truth at all. And they, they wandered right off the path. And that's really where we're at, even as believers. If it's not for God's keeping grace in our life, the, you know, we sing that song, uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. If that didn't happen, we would be utterly going down the road of sin just like everybody else. You know, we like to pat ourselves on the back. Oh, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we do. <clears throat> our hearts are, are just as corrupt <clears throat> as everyone else's. It's just that we have been introduced to the grace of God and our sins have been forgiven and God has given us uh, the ability to, for the first time, live in a way that's honoring to Him by the Spirit of God. We see this scenario play over and over and over again. They, they, they walked away from their, their faith, and God has to chastise them. It, it's really important that I think part of the, the thing for Israel was they got their eyes off the ball. You know, they took their eyes off the ball. They forgot the God that saved them. They, they knew it, technically, intellectually, but it didn't really have the oomph it once did when they first got saved. And so we have to be careful with that. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews really commends us as believers. Uh, he says this in verses 1 through 3. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely <clears throat> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, how do you run a race? If you've ever run in a track race or whatever, you don't run backwards, right? I mean, you run looking at the goal, whatever you're doing. If you're running a sprint, you're looking at the finish line. Um, you keep your eyes focused on that. Well, verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then he gives us an example of what Christ did, who for the joy set 
that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing us saying, hey, we need to be careful. Just like Israel, we have old enemies that, from our past that can, that can creep up quicker than we think. And the, thin, the sin that we think was conquered in our lives can raise its ugly head once again. And so he's just encouraging us that, you know what, that corruption, their corruption, was deep within them. And that's where, uh, I think, last week I talked about the, the book, The Mortification of Sin. And it's a good book by John Owen, if you have a chance to read that. You can find it in Kindle and other places. There's an old English version and a modern English version, so I would recommend you get the modern English version. But we're not safe until we get the glory, right? Because we're stuck in this body. Uh, we're stuck in this sinful world. Well, that's what happened to them. And the Bible says here in verse 2 that their chastisement was, it says that he sold them, God sold them. That, that word literally means to turn over or to give up. In other words, God just said, I'm done. I'm abandoning you to the life that you chose for yourself. That's a terrible place to be, especially as a follower of Christ. Uh, and they paid a terrible price for the rebellion. If you look over in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5, it says there, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. We, we spoke about this last week, too, and the travelers kept to the byways. Why? Because it was so, so dangerous. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I rose. I, Deborah, arose as mother of Israel. And so she was telling us, uh, or the, the word of God here is telling us that it got really, really bad. They were literally driven from their homes and their highways. And we think, well, yeah, this is Old Testament there is still a very high price to pay for those who choose willfully to disobey the Lord. To say, hey, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, you will come under the chastisement of God in ways that you do not want to uh, when you are disobedient. And he does it out of love. He's not doing it ven vengefully or whatever. He, he wants us to be following him. And so when we choose our ways over his ways, and when we choose to follow other gods as they did here instead of him, we can expect his displeasure. And I would say if you do not see his displeasure, then you're probably not a follower. You know, some people say, well, you know, I know this guy, he's a Christian, he's, boy, he's just living like, living in the world, and he's doing all this stuff, and nothing's happening to him, he's making more money. He's probably not a Christian. God is not not chastising him because he's not his own child. He may think he is. But, you know, that's where you have to be careful with that. He will send chastisement into our lives. And there's places you can look. Hebrews chapter 12, once again, 6 to 11, talks about that. Um, Revelation 3.19, Deuteronomy 8.5. But I don't want to be under that kind of displeasure and chastisement from the Lord in my own life. And I'm sure you don't want to be either. And really, the only way that we can avoid that is to keep what I call short accounts with the Lord. You know, I mean, because we're going to sin, right? I mean, we're human beings. We're going to sin. 
But when we sin, what do we do? We go to him, the Bible says, and we confess our sin. And when we do, guess what? He says, yeah, it's been forgiven. And, and his love, as we spoke even on Sunday, is never ending. You know, there's not a limit to his grace. So, but if you choose to just continue on and sin, then you can expect God to touch your, your life in ways you probably won't like or enjoy. Um, that can come through sickness, that can come through issues with your family, finances, whatever. I mean, we all understand that. And then you see in verse 3 here their cry, their cry. It says that uh, uh, he sold them into this, the hand of this king. And then in, in verse 3, we're introduced in verse 2 to the commander of his army, Sisera. And it says in verse 3, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Why? Why did they cry out to him? Because he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So, once again, why did it take you 20 years to wake up? You know, why does it take, you know, sometimes our young people, you know, a lifetime to wake up to the things of God? Um, we just have to be prayerful. We just have to continue to intercede on their behalf. And see, as far as Israel was concerned, when, he looked, when they looked at Jabin as this king and he had these 900 chariots, they're like, I said this before, they're like tanks, modern-day tanks. If you had an iron chariot, it was kind of like having a, an M1 tank. He had 900 of them and all the troops to go with it. And remember, they had stripped Israel of anything, so they had nothing. I mean, last week we looked at, at Shamgar. What did he use? He used an ox goad, right? I mean, so they, they didn't have anything to, to defend themselves with. They had a helpless army, and they were no match for this, this enemy at all. If you question that, in verse 8 of chapter 5, it says, at the end of verse 8 there, it says, Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Question mark. The answer is no. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. So they had nothing to defend themselves with. And so they realized, finally, we need to cry out to God. They had a major spiritual meltdown. And sometimes that can be a good thing, right, in somebody's life. It's hard to see somebody go through that. But sometimes that's exactly what God has prescribed. That's exactly what God desires because he knows that that's exactly what will bring that person where? To their knees. It will break them. And that's what we have to be. We have to be broken if we're going to be saved. All this was happening, and it says they called out, once they realized they were done, they called out to the Lord, and he heard them. But you notice there, it doesn't say anything about crying out in, de, in, in repentance. It just says they cried out. What did they cry out for? They cried out for deliverance from their problem. God, get rid of this problem. And I've seen people do that. I'm sure you have too. And so... At a certain point, God just says, okay, well, you know what? Even though they didn't cry out in repentance, they never even seemed to realize that walking with the Lord and honoring the Lord as he, and his word, as he prescribed earlier, that that brought blessings. What they were doing brought judgment. Their rebelliousness and their wickedness, it always brought judgment. Just like sin always brings judgment. It never, you know, we, we think sometimes... Certain sins, well, they don't really hurt anybody. Yeah, they do. They grieve the heart of God. And so we need to make sure that we will, we don't want to just be saved from the oppressive evil and the effects of evil that surround us. 
All right, but we have to deal honestly. We have to go before the Lord and honestly confess our sins before him, no matter what it is. Our, our goal should not be just to escape our problems. Our goal should be to be found pleasing before the Lord. Our goal should not be just have an easier time in life. Lord, just make my life easier. Our goal should be to be right with the Lord in every situation of our lives. And sometimes those situations are harsh. Those situations are difficult. So they had this spiritual meltdown. We're introduced now to this ministry, the special ministry of Deborah in verse 4. And you see her position there. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, that means basically that she spoke the word of God. Okay, God gave her special revelation. It says the wife of Lipidoth, so she had a husband, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Her name, Deborah, means bee. (laughs) Bee. And she was busy. She was busy like a bee. Literally, it means that. Matthew Henry says that her name suggests the work of the bee. Industrious, sharp, perceptive. She had great discernment. She had great usefulness. She was very kind and, and sweet to her friends. But she was also very sharp to her enemies. And so that it suggests here that she received this direct revelation from the Lord and then she would share it with the people. That's what prophets did in the Old Testament. Today, we don't receive direct revelation from the Lord. I don't get up Sunday morning and say, hey, thus saith the Lord. God told me last night, blah, blah, blah. Well, some pastors do, but (laughs) that's not biblical. Why? Because God has revealed his word to us already, right? It's complete. We We don't need that. And so Deborah is not the only prophetess, the female prophet, in the Bible. There's other ones, Miriam in Exodus 15, uh, Huldah in 2 Kings 22, Anna uh, in the New Testament, Luke 2, and four daughters of Philip's in Acts 21. And so there's, there's no contradiction here. This is, this is what's so important to understand. There's no contradiction here because, you know, some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, don't we believe that you know, elders and pastors, that's reserved for men and men only? Yes, that's what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. But that by no means mean, has the inclination that God doesn't want to use women. And we're going to be talking a little more about that at the end of the message. And so there's no contradiction here between a woman preaching in a church in the New Testament and Deborah doing what God has gifted her to do right here. Uh, God laid his hand on her poured his truth through her in an age when the the Bible wasn't complete yet. Now we have the completed word of God. And so, you know, God doesn't call women to preach today according to the New Testament. That's reserved for men. And so we just have to be understanding of that. The word judge lets us know that what she did is she would settle disputes. People would come to her and say, hey, you know, my neighbor did this, and what do I do about this? And she would render a verdict. It's not Judge Judy, okay? It's not like that. I mean, these are, these are issues that are going on in their, their community and stuff. But they would come to her, and, and she would render a judgment. And really, she was the, the leader of the nation during these dark days. Um, 
because she was kind of the lifeline to God, you might think of it that way. So that was her position. And then we see here her prophecy in verse 6. It says, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, so she's, she's summoning the military leader, and she's saying, hey, uh, has not God said? <laughs> she's being a prophet. That's what a prophet does. It foretells the word of God. And said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and, and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. She's saying, didn't the Lord tell you this, Barak? And he's probably going, yeah, thanks for reminding me, <laughs> you know. I mean, this is like, this is not a contest you want to go to. I mean, they have nothing. They have absolutely nothing (laughs) to defend themselves. And they're going up against an army of 900 tanks, iron chariots. And Deborah's saying, well, you know, the Lord said he's going to draw out Sisera. And I'm I'm sure Barak's going, oh, yeah, thank you very much. But no, thank you. (laughs) And in verse 8, That's her prophecy, and here's the problem. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. That's like, wait a minute. What kind of guy is this, right? Yeah. Now, you know, so she says basically, she calls Barak, and she says, hey, the Lord told you to take 10,000 soldiers and go to war with this uh, amazing enemy, um, the Canaanite general. And God promises, if you trust him, that when you go to war, you're going to have a victory. And so when she shares his word with Barak, he's like, yeah, sounds like a really good plan. Uh, you're uh, you're going to come with me? Because I ain't going if you're not going. It's kind of, you know, we, we want to get kind of critical of that. But we'll, we'll explain this in a little bit. So that was her problem. But look at what happens. She agrees to go. And she said, Hey, I, I will surely go with you. Not a problem. She didn't even balk. She didn't even say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? You're the military leader. I'm the judge. You know, I'm a woman. I'm, no, she agrees to go. But she says, basically, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of of a woman. So what is Deborah saying? Deborah saying, remember back at the, at the very beginning here where it says, and the Lord sold them? <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> He's buying it back. He, he's going, you know what? Um, and it's going to be into the hands of a woman, not you. Um, and so then we get to the kind of the the nuts and bolts of the, the whole story. It says, And Barak called out Zebulun and, and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. And so here they are. 
Um, later, the, the Bible says they had um, some volunteers that, that came out of the tribe of Benjamin, and Ephraim, and Manasseh, and Issachar. So they had about 40,000 people. But remember, I mean, this, this army they're going up against is incredible. And some of the people, surprisingly, some of the tribes refused to do anything. They said, hey, they're going to lose this. Sure is, you know, you can definitely guarantee, and I'm not going to be on the losing side of this. I don't want to be under the judgment of this king when uh, he defeats them. So they just kind of opted out, and, and we'll talk about that in chapter 5. But what's interesting here is that in verse 10, we begin to see uh, the, kind of the story take place. So it says, And Barak called out Zebulun, Naphtali, to Kadesh, and they went up in the hills. And then verse 11, Now Heber, the Canaanite, had separated from the Canaanites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as the oak at Zenanim, <laughs> which is near Kadesh. Now, it's, it's important that we remember this, where this is, it sounds like just a weird little uh, addition to the story, but it's important because uh, we'll see what happens here down the road. And it says in verse uh, 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabar, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagom to the river Kishon. And so you see here that it's, it's, it's a very um, overwhelming force coming against them. It's not something that is uh, just a small little gathering of chariots. You have 900 chariots. You have all the men that go with them. And in verse uh, 14, it says, and, and Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has made. No, this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? I mean, do you think Barak was a little hesitant at this point? I mean, this is probably going to be the day he's going to die. <laughs> That's what he's thinking. But you know what? Deborah said she'd go, so I got to go because I promised her I'd, I'd go if she'd go. So here we are. So Barak went down from Mount Tabar with 10,000 men following him. And look at what happened in verse 15. This is the incredible victory that God gave them. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. So here they come. They come down to this valley where they were told to meet. And notice, as Barak is, is being willing, he's being obedient, he's doing what he's supposed to do, he's taking these men, walking to death, basically. And you notice in verse 15, it doesn't say, and Barak routed Sisera. <laughs> it says who? The Lord. The Lord. Remember we read that verse abundantly beyond all we could even ask or think? This, this is an incredible defeat. This is something that never 
would have happened. And, and it tells us, if you jump over to chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us how this happened. This is usually a dry riverbed. There's nothing there. I mean, it's, it's kind of a battlefield kind of a scenario. You're trapped in this valley with this overwhelming force. And then in verse 21 of chapter 5, it says, The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. And so what happened? Well, God apparently caused a flood. And their iron chariots obviously became stuck in the mud <laughs> of this riverbed that was dry that the Lord basically flooded. And so he took care of them. He, he provided them with a victory that they never would have even imagined happening. But it was God who did it. And that's, that's how God, we're going to see, gets the glory. You know, when we're constantly saying, oh, I did this, I did that, I, that's not giving God the glory. That's giving you the glory. Um, and so we need to make sure that we, we are understanding that when, when we have victories in our life, it's not us. It's God being gracious to us. It doesn't matter whether it's a new job or a, a new relationship or... Uh, you know, a new purpose in life, whatever it might be, that comes from the hand of God as one of his followers. You, you give him glory. You don't take glory on yourself. And so the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. And Sisera, the, the leader, realizes what's happening. This is, I mean, I'm sure it caught him off guard too. His 900 chariots are stuck in the mud. And as soon as their chariots were paralyzed, because that's where all their their trust was, was in their military might, right? And so as soon as that was paralyzed, what did they do? The armies fled. And Sisera saw that happening. He's like, I'm getting out of here too. Uh, and so he took off. He gets down from his chariot and he, it says he fled away on foot. And look, and Barak pursued the chariots, those that apparently weren't stuck in the mud yet and turned around, and the army to Harasheth Hagom, and all the army of Sisera fell by the sword, by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So they did what God basically had instructed them to do earlier. They carried out their task. They killed them all. But Sisera, the rest of the army got killed, but Sisera got away. Verse 17. And this is where her little helper comes in, Deborah's helper, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber, the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. That's why I said before that's an important thing to remember. Because God had set this up in his sovereign plan. This is exactly what was going to happen. And look at what happens. She, she, she came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And she say, well, why would she do something like that? Well, she knew who he was. I mean, this guy represented a massive army. She maybe didn't know that the whole army was dead <laughs> at this point. And so she's thinking, all right, let's... I don't want to be on the losing side here. Um, so she, she invites him in. And uh, it, go, it goes down here. It says... Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And whether she really knew what was going on here or not, I mean, apparently she f figured it out. But, you know, 
So he turned aside to her into the tent. And I love this. And she covered him with a rug. <laughs> uh, so she begins to kind of, it's kind of babies this guy. I mean, he's the military might of this army, right? And so she covers him with a rug. And uh, poor little cold baby here. Verse 19, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And so she didn't give him water. What did she give him? Yeah, she gave him milk. So she opened a skin of milk and gave it to him. And gave him a drink and covered him and tucked him in. I mean, that's kind of the scenario. That's really what's happening here. And I think, that, I think that the first reason she gave him the milk was that, you know, he was convinced that he had entered the, the tent of a friend. He, she was befriending this guy. I mean, for ulterior motives, but she was befriending this guy. And so then, and I think also she understood the, the value of milk. I mean, how many times, I don't know if you do this, but you can't sleep, you get up and have a little glass of milk. It, it works for me. Yeah, it puts me to sleep. So you go down here, and he says here, she covered him up, verse 20. And he said to her, hey, listen, here's what I need you to do for me. Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks, is anyone here, just say no. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll play your little game. So he's snoring away, verse 21. But Jael, that, the wife of Heber, took a tent pig. Now you have to understand, back then, the women, the men would set the tents up. They were the ones that used the structure and they would put the tarp over. But it was the women who would go around the perimeter and pound these tent pigs in whenever they would set up a tent. That was their job. So she knew how to handle this mallet and she definitely knew how to handle this tent pig. And she knew that, hey, this is a guy that opposes um, basically everything that I stand for and he's treated this bad so guess what I befriended him now I'm going to take a tent peg and she took the hammer in her hand and then she went over to him softly I love that softly and then she drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness and then we read the most unneeded by a verse in the Bible. <laughs> so he died. I mean, this is kind of crazy. Well, yeah, you think if you had a tent peg going through your temple, I think you'd probably die. Uh, and then it says, um, verse 22, uh, or so he died in verse 22, and, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Okay, come and I'll show you the man whom you're, at, you're seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. What a way to go. At least he was sleeping. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And so they got his military leader, they got the whole, they got everything. And God gave them that amazing victory. And it's, it's incredible to think that this, this happened because of, of two women. 
Um, and so you see in, in chapter 5, this song of victory really is what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a song that they put together, and they were just praising God with, wow, this is just amazing. You know, isn't it incredible how, you know, in the depths of despair, you know, we're, we're worried, we're sick, we're just, we can't even think straight sometimes. And yet God, that God delivers us, and we have victory in some area of our life. And then we have overwhelming joy, right? It's just like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, just a little while ago, we were, God, are you even there? Right? And that's how the Christian life is sometimes. But here they put this song together, and they praise God for his virtues. And that's really the first part of this, and that's the, the primary thrust of all this. Um, verses 2 and 9, he, it says that he gave them unity so they could raise um, up the, the army. Uh, it says, and the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. They're just, they're just celebrating victory here. And uh, it says that it was the Lord who had given them the victory in the past, and he would not fail them now in verses 4 and 5. kind of talks about all that. It talks about God in his faithfulness gave Deborah uh, to lead them, down in verse 7. I love the description there of Deborah arose as the mother in Israel. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we, we close out tonight. Um, but they, they just wanted to praise God for his power. Uh, and they, they had a valid reason to do just that. Because this was an overwhelming victory. You know, we sing a song, Haven't You Been Good? <laughs> Talking about the goodness of God to us. You know, once in a while, we need to stop and we need to take a little pad of paper and take inventory. And say, God, how have you been good? Even through this past year, even through the beginning of this year, how have you been good? List, weigh specifically how God has showed his goodness, his grace, his love to you. Uh, Because he is worthy of our our love. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. We know that. But sometimes we get in the thick of the battle and we forget certain things that God has done for us. And it takes time to, to think about that. And so they praise God for his virtues, but they also praise God for the volunteers. And uh, they, they sent out a call for volunteers, and like I said, only half of the tribes came to fight. Not everybody showed up. The rest of them refused to go to war because they thought there's no way they're going to win, so we don't want to be on the losing side and, and reap the consequences of that. We'll probably get slaughtered. So we're going we're gonna to bow out of this one. Um, in, in the days of, of Joshua, you remember, I mean, it was every tribe was expected to show up for battle. There was no exceptions. And you can see how far their morale and everything has gone down the tubes because when Barak called for warriors, only half of them showed up. That's, that's pretty sad. Uh, as a matter of fact, in verse 23 of chapter 5, it tells us of a, of a town, Meraz, that was cursed by the angel of the Lord because it refused to send any volunteers. There's, there's consequences, you know. I mean, even back then, <laughs> you had the majority of the work done by the minority of the people. And that's the way it is in most churches today, in most ministries today. Um, the call has gone out for us to tell the world about Jesus, but very few go. Um, the call has gone out for us to take a stand against evil in this world, but very few have answered that call. You know, I, I thank God for the, the willing people 
that are willing to put the hand to the plow and, and to, are willing to work for, for, the, for the Lord, for ministry. Um, and that's, that goes from everybody, even in our own church, to work in the kitchen, to help with the children's ministry, to help with the, the, the sound or the, the video on Sunday mornings or go to prayer meetings or whatever it might be. You know, th- those are not overlooked. They're definitely not overlooked by the Lord. And, and, and we, as leaders, appreciate that, that you're, you're willing to, to lend a hand because that's so, that's so important, the aspect of, of having that volunteer force. But they also praise God for his victory in verses 19 to 23. The enemy was defeated not by their power, not by their military might, but by the power of God. And what's interesting is when you look at all the judges... They're all pretty much military leaders. Deborah is the only one, and she's a woman, but she's the only one that is a spiritual leader. She's a very dynamic woman of God. And, and God used her in a, an incredible way to perform this victory. I mean, they, they defeated this overwhelming force. Um, I was reading one commentary, and the guy said, you know, however this flood happened, the rain came, whatever, torrent. He, he put it this way, he says, one, rain, rain, one raindrop is a tiny, fragile thing. But when it is united with many other raindrops, it becomes a thing of great power. You know, and I, I thought of that, you know, the snow and the freezer happened in Texas, right? One little snowflake isn't going to hurt you. But when you combine it and you shut down, you know, everything, that's, that's crazy. And so, just as God took these weak little raindrops and this water and washed away the enemy, um, he took the weak army of Israel and he gave them a great victory. It's just, it's, it's very incredible what God did. And that's one thing that we need, I think, even today in our world. We need God to step in and, and to really perform a victory that we say, wow, we, how did this happen? Um, we have to stand together. You have to fight. You have to fight the good faith of or good fight of faith. But but you have to realize that God is the one who's going to do this. God will empower us to serve Him. He'll 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 lead us to victory. But it will be for His glory, not our own. Because um, it's not about the numbers. It's not about the military might. It's not about the wealth or the the human intellect that gets the job done. It's what it's the power of God. That's that's clearly what the Bible says. And that's why Paul, I'll just read this for you out of uh, 1 Corinthians. You remember this. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians one twenty six, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? He says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's all of our salvation. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. You know, if we're going to boast, that's where we need 
to have our boasting happen. And so they praise God for his victory. They also praise God for the vessels. They, they chose their song by praising the Lord for his unsung heroes in verses 24 to 31. Um, they praise the Lord for the bravery of Jael, just a common housewife who drove this pent, tent peg through the guy's temple. He slew, he slew, she slew Sisera. Um, I mean, that, that was incredible. Uh, God always has his people in place. We may not know it. We may not sense it. But he has those secret ones, you might say, whom he's working through. And you may not even recognize them. And so we ought to praise God for the unsung heroes of the Christian faith. Uh, people like Ur, who along with Aaron held up, what did they do? They held up Moses' arms when they uh, battled against the Amalekites in Numbers 17. And so we have people in our own church, prayer warriors who are meeting for prayer, who are silent servants, people who are working behind the scenes, people who, who do things that no one would ever even guess or notice and they don't want any attention. You know, that's, that's the people that God uses for his glory. Um, and in verse 31, it kind of closes out the story with the, the, uh, the song of, of Deborah. It says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And so when we think of this, how does this apply to us as believers in the New Testament church? Uh, how do we, where do we go with this truth? Um, you know, we all one day want to hear that, those words from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Um, we want to hear those words. And to do that, we have to turn from our sin and live for Jesus and work for him the best we can. But I think the application comes when we apply this to a faithful church. Not a big church, not a, a mega church, just a faithful church. That's what God's looking for. God's looking for a faithful church. And how do you recognize a faithful church? A church that's being faithful to his word. I think, first of all, from the story, we see that you have to celebrate, honor, and encourage the gifts of women. You know, there are some churches who squash women down. They step on them. They don't want them doing anything. Um, and, and the first thing we see here is if you're going to be a faithful church, you have to honor and encourage the women in your midst. Um, Deborah was a woman, and God gifted her with strong leadership gifts, and she was a, a, a prophet of God. And uh, like I said, she's the only judge who was a woman, but she's not just the only woman, but she was the only judge that actually leads from a place of um, spiritual strength, not just military strength. Uh, she led the people through spiritual go godliness and righteousness and spiritual strength. That was her calling. She was a spiritual leader who leads from godly wisdom. Now, there's a lot of controversy in some circles about the roles of women. You can go online and look at it. You have 
complementarianism, you have egalitarian camp, you've got all these different nuances and people say, oh, they can do this, they can't do that. They can. and, and we don't want to mix up our modern day church with the culture of, of this day. Okay, so we have to be careful here. Uh, and th- there are people, I've read them this past week, there are people who say, well, the only reason God called Deborah as a woman was because there were no faithful men. <laughs> That's what they say. And the men had, had abdicated their responsibility for spiritual leadership, so God had to use Deborah. That's the only reason. Because we know the New Testament says that women shouldn't be in leadership, and so and they go on a tirade. Well, that's simply not true. That's not true. Um, and, and the reason I know it's not true is because we, we, see that, we see that used all the time, that kind of mentality. But the Bible tells us in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, guess who's listed as one of the, the uh, warriors of faith? It's not that, it's Barak, the military leader. All right? And remember I said we criticize Barak for, for calling Deborah to go with him into battle. You know, what a, what a weak-kneed guy, you know, he wants the girl to go with him. Well, I think he recognized this was an incredibly gifted spiritual leader. And if you want anybody with you, you want that. If you're going to march to your death, you want somebody with some spiritual insights alongside of you. And I think that's why he said, I'm not going with, if you're not going. You know, I'm only going to go if you go with me, Deborah. And, and Hebrews 11 recognizes him as being a hero of faith. They existed at the same time. And Barak was recognized by God in Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a man of faith. So here's what, it, what that tells us, okay, is that Deborah was not chosen because Barak was absent. Now, I, I agree. Unfortunately, men have abdicated their responsibility spiritually in the family, in marriages, and even in the churches. They have. Um, and that's unfortunate. But that doesn't mean, okay, that uh, God can't use women. That's not what the Word of God says. Now, like I said, God puts parameters on it in the New Testament. She was chosen, Deborah was chosen because she was a wise woman of the Word. She was obedient to the call of God in her life. And in the Bible, we see that women have access, this is what we're even seeing in the book of Corinthians, we'll see it even more, to the same spiritual giftedness as men. You have Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts. Priscilla was had a, had a vital role in teaching Paul the, the basic orthodoxy of the Christian faith. She was a woman. If you think about it, women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. That's pretty significant, I would say. Women were taught by Jesus' disciples. Um, it was the woman at the well who went and acted as an evangelist to her whole village after she had an experience with Christ, if you remember that. She told everybody about the Messiah. 
And so we see in the New Testament women using their homes and their resources to help plant churches. Paul thanks them. See, and, and this is what I love about God is that in a world where women are objectified and they're seen as less than human, what does God do? God honors them. He honors them. He celebrates them. He raises them up to exercise their spiritual strength and their giftedness. And it's beautiful. And this is not God doing this just to, you know, uh, he, he's not going to be controlled by a, a, a societal or a social construct. He's controlled by righteousness. And we need to hear this, I think, because just because the office of elder, the office of pastor, is, is reserved for men by God's rules. Just because the role of leadership in the family is appointed to the man, according to the word of God, it doesn't mean that we just cast the women aside and they don't have any opportunity at all to use their giftedness and exercise their godly leadership within the life of the church. You have to be careful. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You have to follow the guidelines that God lays down. But, you know, as men, we need to make room for women and celebrate how he's gifted women even within our own small church to use their gifts and their spiritual maturity i mean stop and think about it. if we went around the room and we just asked have you ever been um influenced in any way by a godly woman all of us would probably say yes to some degree at some point in our life you know, we have to be remindful of that. We don't want to just cast aside that. And so we, we, we have, like I said, women within our own church that we need to celebrate and encourage to use their, their godly influence. Um, you know, what's incredible when you read this story, Deborah's not a feminist. <laughs> She's not. She's not like trying to take over the military from Barack. I mean, from the very beginning, what does she do? She celebrates her own marriage. Hey, my husband's this guy. You know, I'm the wife of so-and-so. She's not trying to be a man. She's beautifully being a woman who God has gifted uniquely, and she's exercising her gifts while she's submitting to God's unique design for men and women. That's what we're called to do. In chapter 5, remember, she, she referred to herself as what? The mother of Israel. She didn't say, yeah, move over, Father Abraham, I'm taking over. No, that wasn't in her heart. She understood what her role was. She's not a patriarch. She's not trying to be the authority of God's people. She's not trying to be a, a man here, but she's using her spiritual gifts and her spiritual influence and her leadership to help Israel grow just as a mother would her own child. I mean, ladies, let me be the first to say your voice and your gifts are needed in the life of the church. 
I don't know what we would do without you. Literally. And we need you to continue to pursue God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and pursue the God and his calling on your life and then be used for his glory. You remember Proverbs 31, right? The Proverbs 31 woman. And the last verses in that book of wisdom says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to what? Is to be praised. And then it says this, Give her the fruit of her hands. That basically means honor her for her righteousness. And let her praise, let her works praise her in the gates. It doesn't say subdue her, suppress her, hide her away. It doesn't say that at all. We're to let her use her gifts for his glory. I remember when I was working with some college guys, they were all, how do we find a... Proverbs 31 woman, you know, they're all single. They just wanted a Proverbs 31 woman. I just, you know, they're just hankering for a Proverbs 31 woman. And, and I always tell them the exact same thing. I said, look, guys, you know, in order to have a Proverbs 31 woman, you have to be an Ephesians 5, 25 man. What's that? Well, you know, Christ gave himself for the church. You know, you have to learn how to be a godly leader in your own home, not through oppression, but through what? Through sacrifice. Because that's what Christ did for the church. Um, women are not objects to be used with their gifts, um, but they're, they're, they're meant to be celebrated as partners in ministry. And we should be cherishing them. We need to think differently than the world thinks. Uh, Galatians 3 tells us that in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that men don't have any different access to Jesus than women do? (laughs) We're all on a level playing field. So we need to celebrate and honor and encourage the gifts of women. And then quickly, secondly, be governed by the word and wisdom of God. We see that in in verse 6 of chapter 4 when she says, you know what? She sends for Barak and she says, has not the Lord said? What is she doing? She's, She's commanding him on behalf of God. She's reminding him what God has called him to do. Um... Our lives need to be governed by the word and the wisdom of God, not by, what, the fear of man. See, Barak was kind of tiltering there a little bit of being fearful, right? I mean, he's like, yeah, you want me to go to battle against that guy with nothing? Are you crazy? Well, if you'll go with me, I'll go. Um, He's looking at his opponent in fear. And what Deborah does is she comes right alongside him and she reminds Barak, as a spiritual leader, she's reminding him, you know what? God's word is more powerful than your fear. That God's word can overcome your fear. And I don't know what you're going through today, but you know what? That's, that's a word that God has for you. That God, don't be 
fearful of life's circumstances. Embrace them. Because even the hard ones come from the hand of God. Martin Luther said this, The word of God is not just one thing among many. It is the very basis, the foundation of the church's life. And then he says this, The church is a creature of the word. (laughs) I love that. He's a creature of the world. The church is a creature of the word. And what he's saying is, it informs the way we live. It shapes our thinking. It instructs us. It guides us. It comforts us. It leads us. I mean, the Word of God is everything to us. As a Bible-believing church, we can't know God. We can't grow in our relationship with God. We can't even obey God or worship God in the correct way if we don't understand His Word. The gospel, the word of God, has to be the bedrock of our faith. And it's so sad today because in so many churches, it's not. I mean, if they carve out 10 or 20 minutes for the pastor to get up and say something about God's word, they're lucky. They got all this other stuff going on. I mean, you know, the word of God is comforting at times, right? I mean, incredibly comforting. I'm sure we've all been comforted. But you know what? If we're, if we're really honest, a lot of time it's convicting. <laughs> it's very convicting. And frankly, it's uncomfortable. You know, last week as I was studying for Sunday sermon, I'm just like, oh man, why, why do I have to talk about this? Anger, anger, anger. It's like God just keeps, because I got an anger problem. You know, I've always had a little anger problem. And it's just kind of like, wow, okay. That's just the way it is. So what does the Word of God do? When you come and you're confronted by the Word of God, what does it do? It, it, it comforts you sometimes, but a lot of times it critiques you. It, it reminds you of your sin. It's convicting. It's uncomfortable. It, it points us to the Savior. This is why you need a Savior. You, you're not good on your own. If the word of God is not the bedrock of our faith, we will continue in our sin and we will stop grabbing a hold of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior if we don't have his word as our bedrock. The word of God does affirm us. It affirms us that we're made in the image of God. It affirms that God has a purpose, a plan for our life. It affirms that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're knitted together in the mother's womb. It affirms that he's right there with us as we go through problems, as we go through struggles. He's close. It affirms that our God is all-powerful. He's omniscient. It affirms all those incredible things. And it gives us that confidence to get up the next morning and put one foot on the floor and the next one and, and move on in life in the midst of incredible trials sometimes. But it also critiques us in a way that's making us holy and making us more like his son. We need the word of God, amen? And in a, in, a, in a world today, in an attempt, I believe, for churches, they want to be culturally relevant, there's an extreme temptation to stray away from believing the sufficiency of God's word. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, it says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed when you look at that passage in the context this is peter saying hey i just came down i saw the glory of god and now i just want to remind you that we have a more a prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 20, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You didn't come up with this on your own. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God that we base our faith on. John Calvin said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, there is a church of God. There a church of God exists, even if it swarms with many faults. You're not going to find a perfect church. No church is perfect. But if you can find a church that solidly preaches the word of God, boy, grab a hold of it. Because when a church moves away from Scripture, one of two things will happen. It will run on fumes until it dies, or it will be forced to pursue entertainment to keep people happy. Because something has to be replaced. Something has to be put in that massive gap where the Word of God once was. And both of those things are lifeless. They don't do anything. So hold on to the Word of God. And then thirdly, a faithful church will not be filled with passive spectators, but active participants. I mean, thank God, you know, I can say that and, and really celebrate that that's what our church is. I mean, as I look around here, for the most part, every one of you is involved in some degree, somewhere in our church. Praise God for that. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, that's what we desire. Not just passive spectators, but active participants. That's what a faithful church will have. And then fourth, be laser-focused on the glory of God. It's not about you know, having a big church. It's not about, you know, being able to brag over your ministry or how good a speaker you are, whatever. That's the, it's, it's about giving God the glory. A church that does not exist to reclaim heathenism, to fight evil, to destroy error, to put down falsehood. A church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, and to hold up righteousness is a church that has no right to be. <laughs> not for yourself, O church, do not exist any more than Christ existed for himself. It's a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Be focused on the glory of God. And then lastly, a faithful church, they trust, they have everything necessary for life and godliness. I mean, isn't it incredible? We're saved. God saves us. He forgives us of all our sin. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm giving you everything you need to do what I'm telling you to do. There's no excuse. You can't, you can't say, oh, God didn't equip us. No, he did. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, to 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of, that is in the world because of 
sinful desire. So what an excellent part of Judges. I know the tent peg through the uh, temple was a little gory for some of you, but... uh, I mean, what an incredible woman Deborah was, right? So we need to we need to be able to celebrate that. Let's close in a I'll close in a word of prayer, and then we'll have a, a time of prayer as well. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight, and Lord, we do pray that you would just uh, allow us to take home any truth that we could glean from this example of Deborah and even JL, who uh, served you in a mighty way as well. And Lord, we we don't know what people are going through even in this room, but Lord, you do, and and Father, you're You've equipped them as your followers to embrace any trial or, or turmoil that they may be facing and um, expect you to work in a, in a way that they can't even comprehend because you promised to do that. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, um, continue to just draw us closer and closer to you, to the image of Christ as you form us and fashion us, as you strip away the flesh more and more each day and that we grow more in the spirit. And Father, we just um, we do thank you for our women, even here at, at Grace Bible Church, and how they faithfully serve you. Um, we we would really we would never be the church that we are without them, and so we we really give you thanks for that. And so we praise you, thank you in Jesus' precious name, Amen.